Welcome to Truth Jihad Audio Visual. I'm Kevin Barrett, looking all over the world, sometimes even here in the benighted United States of America, for the most interesting folks telling truths that you'll never hear in corporate-controlled mainstream media. And uh, one of my repeat guests, going way back, is Dave Lindorf. He's one of the few honest journalists who's actually sort of brushed with the mainstream here and there, but has mostly been banished to the alternative media he publishes at thiscantbehappening.net as well as Counterpunch and lots of other places. And he's got a new article out called Covering Up Anti-War Protest in U.S. Media, asking why, if, if they had an anti-war protest and nobody from the media came, uh, why would that be? And uh, if an right. anti-war really tree, <laughs> anti tree fell in the forest, would anybody be there to hear it? Uh, certainly not the media. So so Dave, what's going on? Back in the day, I remember, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s, kind of like you, and in, actually, it was the 70s, but the 60s hit Wisconsin in the 70s. So I remember in those days, the media actually covered anti-war protests and not so much anymore. What's up with that? Well, it, it, it's not totally true that they covered things in the 60s and 70s. They sometimes they try to ignore things. Mostly what they did, though, because for, I think partly because the, the protests were much larger in the 70s, it was pretty hard to completely pretend they didn't happen, but they would lowball the counts. I mean, we used to say, you probably remember, I mean, people used to say, well, multiply it by two and it's probably accurate, you know, the number. And and they'd always attribute it to the police or something who mm -hmm. uh, would lowball it too. Um, and we didn't have things like drone photos of the marches where it made it easy to, to discount them. So there was that. And uh, they would focus on things other than the issues of the protest. So it would be, you know, examples of violence uh, or, you know, disputes with police or something. So it was always like changing the message. Yeah. So it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like, you know, things were great, but uh, they couldn't completely ignore them. Sometimes I remember one time there was a mass protest in New York, one of the early ones against the war where we we. I went down while I was in high school and it was, I guess, my first demonstration and it was in Central Park. There must have been at least 400, 300, 400,000 people in the rally. And then we marched to the UN and and filled the street across from the UN on First Avenue. And it was huge. And they didn't do, and lots of good speakers, and they didn't do anything on the march. They just ran a photograph on an inside page showing some of the demonstrators and that was it. it had a little caption so that that kind of thing went on but still they did report on it it, it did happen now this thing on the 18th um got zero we checked every and, and this was the anniversary of the iraq invasion uh protest in dc Pardon? You're talking about the, the anniversary of the Iraq invasion. Yeah, the 20-year anniversary yeah. of the invasion of Iraq uh, was was uh, completely unmentioned in the in the corporate media. Absolutely total. We, I, we did a, a uh, I did the article for FAIR, and it was, um, we looked at, they had an intern going through Nexus, and I went through Google, you know, with a fine-tooth comb, and there was nothing. So, um, it only got covered in the alternative media. Um, the difference with the February 19th march uh, or uh, demonstration before that one uh, was that 
it did get covered by Fox, mm-hmm. right? And <laughs> yeah, uh, things are really getting not strange. Only, when... Not only did it get covered, it got touted by uh, Tucker Carlson uh, in his show the day before, you know, which um, probably did more harm than good in terms of, you know, people on the left just wanted nothing to do with it. So um, is that what they're trying to do, do you think? Fox? Well, no. Is, is there some sort of general uh, agreement among the American oligarchy that the only little bit of anti-war stuff we're going to let into the mainstream is going to be on Tucker Carlson so that the whole left, which is the natural constituency of anti-war movements, uh, continues to be stampeded into supporting war? I, You know, I, I don't know whether I'd buy into that as a, a conspiracy theory of the media because Fox is really uh, such an outlier on corporate media well tucker's show is the most watched show in america yeah but they're but they're an outlier from all the rest you know so um so i mean they're doing their own thing and uh you know it i i can't bring myself to watch it but (laughs) well getting to watch tucker i mean tucker is not so bad he's you know i I also can't watch uh msnbc i i mean i just yeah. both of them are just off my list and i don't even have a tv so if it's not mm-hmm. I, I watch any of the me TV either watch, you know yeah. selected things on the computer but yeah. uh but uh it, it's more it's more of an obstacle of getting anything done if you watch tv <laughs> yeah like, I, I, I agree i haven't had a tv since uh, my parents had one in high school basically but yeah so so it's we're we're in weird territory when the only coverage of anti-war protests and even sympathetic coverage too is happening on Fox. I mean, what happened? Like back in 2006, I was being witch hunted and beat up on Fox uh, as a way to scare all of the professors away from you know really radically questioning this uh, war on Islam that had been launched with the 9/11 false flag, and and so Fox at that time and the, the Republican Party. Um, uh, was just radically pro-war and the coverage was actually a little bit more fair to the extent you could say that in the non-fox media and now it's the opposite what how did that work well it's who's in power right <laughs> but, yes I suppose you know when when trump was in power fox was was uh doing great uh you know was was great for the establishment such as it was and and so it, uh, you know, it got a big viewer base, and now they have that viewer base. So, um, you know, all the all the uh, wackos that in, uh, you know, that are like basically supporting uh, nationalist, uh, fascist things are all watching Fox. Which is a lot of their viewer base. All the people that that uh, you know, I'm not saying that's what everybody that's watching it is a fascist, but you know, that's a big section of their viewer base. So that gives them uh, a lot of ratings. Yeah, I, I, w- I would actually question whether those people are really any more fascist than the kind of establishment corporate media left. You know, depending on how you uh, dis- define fascism, but usually yeah, it's the merger it, of state yeah, and corporate power. You get into a, you, you yeah. get into a, a mess when you start trying to define fascism. But yeah, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't agree with that. But uh, there's there's a lot wrong with corporate media. Uh, I don't think it's fascism. I think it's more corporatism, which is yeah. 
Well, that is that's what equally dangerous or more dangerous. I don't know. I thought fascism was corporatism, according to Mussolini. Well, no, I mean, capitalism is more than that. It's 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 the combination of the military, the government, and a and a party. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like for instance, China. I think is where I lived for two years and reported for five is. in my view, uh, a pretty close definition of fascism. Hmm. Interesting. It's a one-party state. It's it's run by the military and the party. I mean, ev- the party is in everywhere. There's there's a uh, at university level, at the department level of a university. Uh, at, there's always a party secretary for each level of organization. That's true in corporations. It's even true in uh, capitalist corporations in China there's there's a uh you know there's these party secretaries at the top and down through them and so the the hands of the of the party are are everywhere so uh between that um and the power of the of the military and then the power of these big state corporations and the uh, so-called private corporations that are owned in largest controlling interest by the Chinese government. Um, you got everything, all the ingredients. Interesting. So what, what do you think of Michael Hudson's analysis that actually the, what you're describing is more uh, leftist and that it is essentially anti-oligarchical? His His analysis is that the West is oligarchical in that uh, power has been allowed to accrue to the financial capitalist rentier class, and they have essentially complete control. They buy and sell the politicians, they buy and sell the military people, the covert ops people, the mafia people, everybody. It's all bought and sold and owned by the oligarchy. Where And, and that oligarchy is basically a parasitical rentier oligarchy that lives on unearned rents. And uh, according to Hudson's analysis, China would be more an example of a country that has gotten its oligarchy to some extent under control. It has a public banking system uh, so that there's a lot less of that phenomenon of a class of people that lives on unearned rents, parasitical class that runs the entire country purely for its own benefit. And that so they have this ideological group, the Communist Party, that insists that, hey, we have to try to run things more or less for the benefit of ordinary people at least as best we can so so what that and, and and of course hudson has that analysis you know he, he goes through all of history and he sees the rise of the, of the west and you know greece and rome and so on uh, and then europe as uh, basically what happened was that the oligarchs got out of control and seized power in all these other countries you know with with dynastic systems and and uh you know kingdoms and so on and so forth the whole point of having a king was to keep the oligarchs under control and uh, the West is defined by the fact that its whole history has been one of letting the oligarchs get completely out of control. And this extreme decadence that we're in right now is kind of the terminal phase of that. Hudson's absolutely right. It's his analysis of the West, uh, but he's off completely on China. I mean, China is a uh, a lockdown police state. Uh, it's worse now than it was when I was there in the 90s. I was there all through the 90s. And there was some opening for people to have a say in what happened uh, and less monitoring of people. Now it's down to facial recognition on street corners, um, instant arrest if you're doing something they don't like, 
um, locking people away without uh, any connection with uh, their family or even knowing where they are. Um, you have a uh, 800, at, at least when the last time I looked, 800,000 domestic army stationed in China for repressing any kind of, uh, you know, out of line behavior, whether it's workers at a plant that aren't getting paid or, uh, you know, you name it. I mean, there's, they're just, there's soldiers everywhere um, when in China and their domestic army. It's like what we are seeing the U.S. trying to create, you know, with that, uh, what do they call it? Uh, the, um, the fusion centers and stuff. No, no, no. That's this whole separate thing. I mean, the army. There's a. There's a. They, I, I forget who did it. It might have been Obama. It might have been Bush during the 9/11 stuff. But they they established the northern Northern Command that oh, is the yeah. United States. Yeah. We never had that before. Now now we have an army in the U.S. China's had it all along. Eight hundred thousand people is a lot of people to just be. They're called uh, the Wu Jing, the armed police, but they're actually a part of the army. And so, uh, you know, there's no way that that is a uh, improvement on oligarchy. It's it has the same amount of control as the oligarchs, only it's centralized more. So I, I would call it fascism. I think it's like uh, uh, it's sort of the um, gold standard of fascism to have a party, a single party. A, a military and a, a corporate sector that are melded together. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, that uh, would suggest that maybe the uh, emerging multipolar world with China as its center isn't necessarily going to be a paradise. Uh, although Chinese seem to be a lot more diplomatic in the way they deal with other nations than the uh, the Western oligarchy, which of course has been murderous. Uh, and the, the Chinese seem to be using trade. I, I recently published an article discussing how China's reliance on trade and diplomacy seems to be beating the, uh, the U.S. reliance on war. Uh, absolutely. I mean, they've got a They they are, uh, you know, their economy is on the rise. They've got money to spend in other countries to do things like build roads for them, build schools for them. The United States is a declining economy. And what it's doing is, I, I like, did you read uh, Eve Oxenberg's piece in the last weekend, Counterpunch? I don't think so, no. It's worth reading. She makes a very, very uh, skillful and articulate argument that the United States is uh, in a uh, spiraling decline economically as a power in the world, and that it, but that it has a superior military uh, to basically anybody. And not they don't, not that they can win wars because they don't know how to to deal with the, the things like Taliban and you know uh, uh, a popular uh, uprising against their efforts to occupy. But they um, they have you know clearly better weapons than the Russians do. Um, the Chinese are trying to catch up and probably will. But uh, the U.S. only thing it has is its military and it's using it to try to maintain its power in a uh you know holding action because mm -hmm. it can't do it economically mm -hmm. and that's yeah. very dangerous of course because uh you know um, the us has no um no moral standard at all when it comes to using its weapons it kills uh 
It massively kills civilians. It would use its nukes. It, they've made that clear. Um, they're the only ones who have used nukes, and they uh, are perfectly willing to use them if they feel the need. So it, it that kind of a wounded uh, wounded animal is dangerous. Right. And it looks like there's a buildup to a possible World War III as the same scenario is being planned for Taiwan as was deployed in Ukraine. That is mobilizing uh, and, you know, anti-Russian sentiments in Ukraine, anti-Chinese sentiments in Taiwan, weaponizing them, creating a crisis and basically forcing the issue, in the case of Ukraine, forcing Russia to preemptively invade. And presumably their plan was to crush Russia and then do it to China. But that may not be working out so well. Uh, do you do you see that plan unfolding, and if so, successfully or not? Uh, well, I'm I'm counting on the good sense of Chinese leaders not to you know push it because they don't really need to. I mean, they all they need to do is is be there, and Taiwan you know behaves. So uh, you know, the Taiwanese don't want to be part of China. The the the, the thing, the interesting thing. I, I lived in Taiwan for a year or two, and the interesting thing about Taiwan is that the majority of Taiwanese uh, people uh, are native to the island. They're they speak a, a uh, the, almost identically to what the people in Fujian speak, and there's a lot of family ties between Fujian and Taiwan among the Fujianese speaking Taiwanese. Uh, and then there's also a huge population of Hakka who are a, uh, a Chinese minority in China as a whole, uh, who uh, are it's sort of they're almost almost like Chinese gypsies only there's too many of them to be gypsies. They live in par all parts of China where they're looked down on by the local majority. And in Hong in Taiwan, for some reason, and I don't know what the history of how of it, what, how they all got there, but there's a huge population of Hakka, and they uh, um, are not interested in being part of China because in Taiwan they have it good. They're so it's such a big minority that they can elect mayors, they can uh, you know elect large numbers of people to the Taiwanese parliament. They, um, I'm not sure they've had a president who's Hakka. They may have, but um, so so uh, you've got those two groups that want nothing to do with going to the mainland because they they have nothing to gain from it, and then and oddly, a lot of the people who want to cozy up to China are descendants of the um, influx of nationalists uh, who came after the fall of the. Uh, the nationalist government in China and the takeover of China. Shang Kai-shek's grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there were a large army was moved over there and then they massacred all the leaders of the local Taiwanese uh, administrations around the city, around the country. It was like a, a, a brutal 20,000 people murder, sort of like Operation Phoenix in Vietnam. And... Uh, that's long remembered, you know, those people, the ones that speak Mandarin or, or Cantonese um, in Taiwan. And they, they're the ones that are doing business in China that, that want friendly relations with China uh, because um, it's good for business, you know. And, and China, like when I was there in the 90s, after they had finished dropping rockets on the north and south of Taiwan Island to scare the Taiwanese. 
it was a pretty good time actually in in the late 90s that China was uh, uh, being nicer to Taiwan and the Taiwanese were uh, going in and investing in China, running businesses there and uh, getting along fine. And and I, I think the Chinese look at that as sort of the way to go, unless the Taiwanese do things like, uh, you know, invite, uh, uh, try if they tried to establish a U.S. Navy base there or something like that, mm -hmm. that would trigger it. Exactly. Or or even a, a declaration of independence. I mean, that's and that's what the Americans are trying to to get them to do. Right. That's yeah, they're the not going to do that. They, they, Taiwanese they, are not that stupid. I mean, the Taiwanese aren't stupid. They're very smart people. They have a very uh, uh, much more democratic country than this country does. I mean, uh, I I was there for uh, <laughs> I was there for the the election when the the sitting president and vice president were riding in a jeep in the president's hometown uh, of uh, Tainan, and he was shot with some bullet that went through the front windshield of the Jeep, went across his abdomen, making a half inch trench across his belly, and then hit the president, the vice president in the kneecap. And, you know, it was sort of the magic bullet. Yeah, magic bullet that didn't quite work out. It didn't quite kill anybody. But, uh, but, um, and then there was this big dispute over whether that was, uh, staged by the president and his followers. You can't stage a bullet through a windshield and make it do anything safe, you know. Uh, think. Or or whether um or whether uh you know he, he was a victim and you should vote for him. And and in the end, uh that election went down to the wire with uh, I think twenty almost 20 million people voted in a country of 27 million. And uh, it was narrowly in favor of the president's reelection by 0.25%. So they had a recount and the recount lasted a week. It was all paper ballots. And when the recount was done, um, it came out exactly the same. Imagine that. Right? Well, so that speaks well in of, this of country, their every election time procedures. Recounts in this country, everything changes dramatically. Yeah. Know? Yeah, they, yeah. They decide what's valid ballot. What is this valid? Is this valid? The, in their case, they, you know, it was very clear. They had the ballot. They had three judges, uh, one from each party, and then also a a, a judicial judge in looking at all the ballots. And there were no disputes. And it's, mm. you know, so maybe, maybe we should hire the Taiwanese to come oversee our elections. Yeah, they, we should. We should. We de, we do need an overseer for our, you know, a, 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 an international observer of U.S. elections. But that, you know, they really care about that. Their voting is uh, not required, but it's always way up there, like 80 percent participation. And mm -hmm. people really care. So they're not going to want to go to China. So, yeah, well, they, they would probably like to keep the de facto sort of semi-independence they've got now as the least worst option. But yeah, if we, they don't, they're not buying the Chinese offer of a, a one country, two systems that Hong Kong had that didn't work out too well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would just wonder whether, you know, given what the U.S. or its neocons and their friends were able to accomplish in Ukraine, where you had a perfectly functioning kind of neutral country that was you know getting better economic offers from russia than from the west 
and yet somehow was brainwashed into pursuing a suicidal course. Uh, are the, is it just that the Taiwanese are smarter than the Ukrainians? Or, I mean, what would prevent the U.S. from pulling something like that off in Taiwan? Well, what I told you, I mean, the, uh, the Taiwanese are very involved politically in their in their own fate. It's not a handful of people at the top that are running things there. Mm -hmm. So uh, getting them to go along with suicide mm -hmm. and a war is, is not going to yeah. happen. So, uh no, that that would it would have to be forced on them somehow externally by the U.S. and I I don't think they'd tolerate it. I mean, they, yeah. they, there's a very strong survival instinct in Taiwan, and uh, and I don't think China wants it. You know, I mean, the, in the, in the final, of course not. <laughs> You know, in the final analysis, they don't really care that much about anything but the symbolism of Taiwan being independent. And the Taiwanese know that. So yeah. when it, whenever it's looked like there was a president who was going to do that, they got unelected mm -hmm. and, you know, were replaced by somebody who wanted to keep things steady. Well, that's bad news for the neocon war party, because that means that they're not going to be able to easily, you know, gin up an excuse for a preemptive World War Three against China by manipulating Taiwan. So they might have to just arrange for a conventional false flag, like having an American ship sunk or something like that, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which would happen too. I mean- Yeah, that's, you, that's not that unrealistic, is it? No, if the UFs overstepped, they'd, they'd lose a ship. Right, so actually they could, they could not just have to sink their own ship, like remember the Maine, they could actually set up a situation where China really would sink their ship. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and of course, there there is that war party that, you know, said there are all sorts of folks who seem to think that war with China is basically inevitable because the U.S. has to stay number one. And the only way that's going to happen is war with China. Uh, so I don't what do you think of the odds of, of war with China by, say, 2025 or 2020? Uh, I gave this a lot of thought because I just wrote a book about uh, Ted Hall, the teenage spy that gave the yeah. Russians the bomb. Yeah, we did a show on that. That's that's amazing work. Yeah. And and that's going to come out in September or October. And I had to turn in my manuscript on March 1st. I was hoping that the Ukraine conflict would be over by then. So I wouldn't have to deal with, with that. But the issue is, you know, like I, I told my cousin, this is what I'm up against. I told my cousin, who is a retired cop from uh, Tucson, uh, who, um, you know, is really decent guy and a very uh, honest cop and we were talking cop stuff and and i i told him about this book and um he he said oh so in other words if uh if ted hall hadn't given the russians the bomb we wouldn't be in this mess in ukraine right now and i said well that's probably true but the only way that russia would not have nuclear weapons today would have been if the U.S. had uh, completely blitzed it as as Truman planted it with 400 nuclear bombs, destroying 70 cities and killing 20 million people. And then they would have had to keep doing that every time the Russians tried to come back. Sort of like the Israelis mowing the lawn in Gaza, only much worse. Yeah, exactly. So I said, if that's the alternative, I don't think that that would have been a Good, a good situation because the U.S. wouldn't have even just stopped at bombing Russia. They would have been bombing all over the place, China, mm -hmm. you know, Vietnam, everywhere to get their way. And so, you know, for the sake of the world, it's a good thing he did it, you know. But I also, you know, realizing that there's that element in the United States, I also thought hard about uh, 
how the how mad has given us 75 years of no use of nuclear weapons since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, mm-hmm. and it, ha- it it's had an amazingly successful uh, run of preventing nuclear war. And uh, admittedly, there were a couple of very close calls that were uh, basically saved by people low down the chain of command who refused orders to fire. And um, so, um, Occasionally, it was leaders having a a, a realization too. So uh, I think that uh, based on that run of of almost eight decades now, going on toward the eighth decade of no nuclear weapons used, that um, and through some pretty hairy times of conflict, that this will not lead to use of nuclear weapon by either side. Mm-hmm. I think that in when it comes right down to it somebody's going to flinch and not use nuclear weapons. I would like to think that too. There's of course a technological change issue. You know, we, we know that navies and aircraft carriers in particular are now sitting ducks because of the improvement in missile technology, but that same improvement in missile technology has made in some people's minds, nuclear war more thinkable because it can be you know more accurate. They believe that sort of whoever goes first will take out enough of the other side's uh, missiles that they could then defend themselves against what little was left. That's been the thinking of the American you know, posture, which is really an openly first strike posture. And right. but it, it's questionable whether they are in a position to even dream that they could do that. And of course, that's all classified above our our level. But according to one interpretation, they very well may think that. Uh, I have had a had a uh, radio guest, Phil Kraske, recently who said that he wrote a piece arguing that the reason for the neocons uh, whipping up this war in Ukraine was to create an eventual pretext for a, an out-of-the-blue nuclear first strike, disarming strike on Russia. And he he thinks from his reading of things that they, they probably think they can do that. Based on what I've seen in the public domain, I wouldn't think they could. Uh, just based on you know Russia with its hypersonic missiles and its uh, tidal wave why- weapons and... That's yeah. why Russia went so heavily into hypersonic missiles, yeah. because they were afraid of that. But the hypersonic missiles are real, and you know they have them now, and the U.S. has no way to stop them. So I don't think that, you know, it 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 comes down to the question of do I think that the U.S. would be well? First of all, there's there's two issues actually smart halfway intelligent people in the US government even realize that in order to wipe out Russia they'd have to use so many nukes that it would be a global destruction anyway even if all the missiles and all the bombs landed in the the, the uh boundaries of Russia so i so i you know that's the that's the big problem for them you know you can't destroy everything without destroying everything. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's one. And the other is, uh, I don't think that the, anyone imagines that they can prevent uh, a fair number of Russian missiles making it through and, and getting launched and making it through to the US and destroying Los Angeles and New York and Chicago and, you know, what what have you? So do, are they willing to risk that to of you know five ten million fifteen million Americans dying to to realize their 
wish of global destruction? I, I, I don't think so. I think that 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 would be stopped one way or another. One would certainly hope so. <laughs> but may, you know, it'd be nice if there were a little bit more of a you know, popular uh, uprising against all of this nonsense. Uh, and and again, this brings us back to your article on covering up anti-war protests in the in the U.S. media. That how what strategy now could possibly work to uh, try to push things in in a less warlike direction by you know mobile, mobilizing popular sentiment for peace? It's you know it seems like we're in a, a tough position where the natural constituency of the anti-war movement, the left, has really been you know stampeded into uh tolerating or even supporting this this war on Russia and basically becoming much more uh tolerant of the uh, warmongers so how, how do we reverse that well when one I thought one hopeful sign was the number of uh of peace organizations including uh venerable ones like vets for peace and you know code pink and others all all two over 200 endorsed this uh answer organized demonstration and answer was usually poison for much of the kind of liberal anti-war left but they all signed on and uh and i and so you know if that's true um then maybe the, the that's sort of the beginning of a uh more activist anti-war movement that can come from that be interesting if that would be the issue that would bring left and right together that would be a, a very positive way to break down some of the polarization that's been so extreme yeah yeah i mean that's sort of been forced on us you know because like the uh that's how the government divides and conquers you know but um so um i i, I it makes me po feel more hopeful that there was that broad support for the answer organized thing that you did. Yeah, me too. Do you think that uh, RFK Jr.'s presidential campaign could play a role in this? He's kind of reaching out to try to you know, create a, an anti-polarization kind of group of people. You know, he's got some folks on the right that like him because of his perceived sort of COVID uh, contrarianism. And uh, but other than that, he's he's leans obviously towards the more left to democratic side of things. And I, I found that his candidacy quite inspiring in that he's on the record as about the, you know, the coup d'etat that, that, you know, terminated his uncle's presidency and prevented his father's presidency. And he knows this and he, he openly talks about it. And to me, that's actually kind of heroic. And just for that reason alone, you know, plus this, you know, Kennedy mythos, it seems like a kind of a, an interesting phenomenon that would be worthy of our support. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I, I personally, as somebody who's immune compromised and who has not gotten COVID uh, at all by wearing masks and by getting all the vaccinations that I can get, uh, <laughs> I I think he's a crackpot, and and I think that that uh, sort of rules him out uh, for a mass popularity, you know. So I I, I mean I would I would certainly. But, but, but Dave, Dave, the scientific evidence is now 100% clear that mask mandates, maybe individual mask for somebody who uses an, you know, a, a high tech mask and wears it really well and shaves and stuff that may provide some benefit, although there's no evidence even of that. But there is evidence 
that mask mandates and masking in general as public policy and as what masses of people do doesn't provide the slightest bit of benefit, not even 0.0001%. The New York Times just published that piece on this massive meta research project that yeah, proved that. That. Was deep, that was debunked because they misinterpreted the evidence. No, that's, that's nonsense. They explained it. It was, it was, they were using, they were using studies that uh, did not find out whether people actually were wearing masks who said they were. It was, it, it was massively flawed because of things in India and other places they used for their meta study. So it, it, it even the guy that originally said, uh, spoke out of turn and said that it shows that it didn't work said that he well, was wrong about that well, no. he, 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 he I, said he I, said okay it doesn't prove you, it let me just tell you my personal experience i did not go i i have never eaten in a restaurant since the beginning of may of of march of 2020 and that's the biggest failure of that of this whole thing is going into restaurants and eating and talking and you know where there's no ma nobody masking um it that's where the germs get spread that and and kids in schools no it's not true because there, there would be there would be evidence uh uh, uh there are all kinds of studies of transmission of, of respiratory viruses and masks and the sum total of that evidence was you know in the past two years ago it was well it's almost certain that they don't have any effect at all i'm, I'm telling you my personal experience i i've never gotten covid i've never eaten in restaurants uh, i wear my mask everywhere else my wife does too uh, I'm very careful with my granddaughter visiting because I know kids aren't going to wear their masks uh, in school and, and don't have to. And um, so that's a spreader. Um, and um, and the other thing is that I did not even with my I didn't fly anywhere. I didn't see my grandchild in England for two years after he was born. And then. Uh, I talked with my uh, my pulmonologist who worked in uh, Penn Medicine uh, and was at the forefront of combating the sickest people as a pulmonologist during the height of the pandemic. And she said, Dave, I've worn a mask uh, all through the pandemic and I did not get COVID and uh, not even a mild case, no COVID. She said, you're safe if you shave, which I do all the way around and cover my my goatee which i didn't used to have i had a full beard i i um wear a good n95 mask which is the only kind that works mm -hmm. and she said if you wear that uh you know with a with like a silicon edge around it so it really seals and you go to the airport and fly on a plane even a crowded plane and turn the air duct down on you so it's creating positive pressure around your seating area um, you're safe and i did it and I went and saw my grandson and I, I went to the uh, screening of my movie in Cambridge, first uh, premiere in England of it, where, and where Ted uh, worked until he died. And, um, I, uh, and I then went to Telluride, uh, flew on a plane with my wife there. Uh, went to two, three, four, four showing screenings of the movie that were packed and uh, wore my mask again. I never got COVID. Um, and uh, I have so many friends. Who well, got I'm, glad, I'm glad you didn't, Dave. Times. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, I, I've got many friends who've gotten sick of co from COVID. Uh, some bad cases, uh, mild cases. Uh, every time they've done it, it's turned out they've been eating in restaurants. They flew on a plane with, with uh, the wrong kind of mask. 
um, you know, like a surgical mask doesn't work. Um, and, um, you know, or they went to somebody's house for dinner and I don't do that either. So, uh, you know, masks work and isolation works better too. I, don't, you, I can't be isolated that much. Well, I'll admit that. that yeah, this, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not going to argue that the properly wearing an N95 and being super careful like you are wouldn't have necess- wouldn't have any effect. You, well, you can't. Number one, you can't prove a negative, and number two, actually, your position isn't isn't irrational. But uh, with with the RFK Jr. issue, I mean, he's not been running around uh, talking so much about masking or even making light of of COVID. Uh, to me, the most well, of course, he's he's exposed the corruption in big pharma, which is probably the most corrupt industry in the U.S. other than the uh, the, the military industrial complex. No argument. And, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Have you, have you read his book, by the way? I bet you would agree no. with 98% of his book, maybe 99%. You should read it sometime. It's not what you think. In any case, uh, the most biggest contribution he's made to my mind to the whole COVID issue is uh, looking into the COVID origins uh, problem, because it's it's clear that there's been a horrible cover-up, and by far the most likely scenario, based on what I've read so far, is a deliberate U.S. bioattack on China and Iran. And uh, this... The scandal of COVID origins, to me, is the real issue here. And he's absolutely fearless and would go after that, just he would go after other aspects of the deep state that murdered his father and his uncle. Yeah, yeah. No, that's important. Um, but, uh, you know, he's got he's got some pretty crackpot ideas about more than COVID vaccine. You mean the other vaccines? Other other vaccines. Well, let me let me send let me send you turtles all the way down again. If I I, I guarantee you that if you read two books, RFK Jr.'s book and especially Turtles All the Way Down, that book out of by a couple of Israeli scientists who had to remain anonymous to make sure that they didn't get witch hunted, uh, I'm quite certain that your views will evolve. That maybe I'll even pay for them if I would you read them if I sent you them, and I'm I I don't have to. I'll read them. Okay, well, we'll we'll see what we can do there. But yeah, I mean, we got we got to find common ground on some of these things, and that's what we do here on Truth Jihad Radio. Rather than trying to hide, heighten the partisan divides and yell at each other and things like that, we try to find things that uh, reasonable people can agree on. And Dave Lindorf, you're definitely one of the most reasonable people I know, and I'm really happy you haven't gotten COVID and are continuing to do your really excellent work. I'm, I'm motivated motivated by my uh, pulmonologist telling me if I get COVID, I'm probably toast. You I mentioned have, that on an earlier interview. So I'll just get a inflamed lungs and scarred up and you know, even if I survive it, I won't be the same person. <laughs> so that that's, yeah, that's that's why I'm totally cheering for you to do whatever it takes for you to not get COVID and still uh, lead a good life and keep doing your great work. Well, thank you, uh, Dave Lindorf of thiscan'tbehappening.net. It's always good talking with you and reading your 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 work. So keep up the good work. God bless. See you next time. Inshallah. All right, thanks. Enjoyed being on. Bye-bye. Likewise. Bye.